Michael, this is all very confusing. This is On Markets with Remy, Tino, and Mike, the podcast where we decrypt and demystify economic, financial, and other investing concepts. It's Tuesday, so we're going to talk about Tino's most recent publication. For those of you who don't know, Tino writes a weekly piece also entitled On Markets, which happens actually to be the inspiration for this podcast. You can find today's article called Don't Blow Yourself Up and the entirety of his literary work at investwithdarwin.com. If you have any questions, comments, or would like to discuss something on the show, please email us at comments at onmarkets.com. Also, if you like the show, don't forget to hit the follow button on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. Don't Blow Yourself Up details five common strategies or tools that are available to the everyday investor that can very easily lead to the mass destruction of your portfolio. So let's walk through each one individually, starting with margin lending. Tino, I have to imagine either this one or number four on your list has the highest potential for just complete and utter disaster. So let's walk through margin lending first and we'll take it from there. I I would love to rank these later. Uh, Margin lending, look, I mean, there are certain things in this world that debt makes sense using, right? And and I'm not an anti-debt person at all. Actually, if you think about some of the companies and frankly, some of the countries rather that that use debt, if you use it properly, it's really not that big of a deal. But uh, you know, use it to, pay, to, buy, to buy a house or, or a car. There's no reason to lever up your equity portfolio through margin lending. So basically, margin lending is uh, your broker, like, like a Charles Schwab or, or TD, whatever it may be, or, will lend you more than what your portfolio value is worth. So let's say you have $100,000 in your account. Uh, most brokers will allow you to lever up to about 150%. So they'll give you another $50,000 to go and invest as you please. Now, the obvious benefit here is it's like when you buy a house. If you put $100,000 down, you buy a house for $500,000, you sell it for $600,000, you double your money because your your equity value is only $100,000. That's the appeal here with margin lending. But the problem is people forget that leverage goes both ways. You know, you could also get wiped out pretty quickly I know people personally through the years that have, they had a view on the market, they went big and the market went against them. And what happens is you get what's called a margin call, right? Where the broker is not going to risk their capital for the, for the benefit of you going out and gambling. So if your collateral falls below a certain level, the broker will force you to put either post more collateral or what they do a lot of times is they'll, they'll just basically liquidate your positions to make sure that they can get their money back. And it could cause irreparable damage if you're not careful. So uh, I would definitely say margin lending is probably one of the riskiest and worst things an investor could do to try to get them to their financial goals. Tina, do you think that the average investor just doesn't perceive the risk that way? Like you yourself just analogized it to you know a house and a mortgage, but a house the volatility of the value of a house is much more stable than virtually any stock. I mean, do you think that that's the issue with people? They don't really realize the risk they're taking? Yeah, they don't realize the risk. And I think also, too, they, they suffer from a case of optimism. They just think this isn't going to happen to me. It also, too, it depends on what type of margin you're using. If you're, mar- if you're levered up to go after an S&P 500 index fund, yeah, to your point, Mike, it's, it's going to be hard to see that get whipsaw 20 or 30% where they're going to do a margin call on you. If you're dealing with illiquid securities or a, a, let's say a thinly traded stock, which a lot of times you see margin lending go towards. Yeah. I mean, that could happen within a day or two. It, it could happen within an hour. I mean, it, it's, it's not quite as volatile as let's say Bitcoin, but some of these instances or, or excuse me, some of these stocks, they could move on you. And because of the leverage, you know, a Schwab or whatever it may be, will come out and say, you know what, you need to post collateral within two hours or whatever it is. And they may change their mind. At any point, the broker can go in and, and, and liquidate your positions and then you're out. You're done. You have, you have a loss that you can't recover from. So a lot of these places like Schwab and 
you know, TD and Fidelity and so forth, make it super easy to trade on margin. That's what I was going to say is the threshold is so low. You know, I have a TD account and I think the threshold's only like 20 grand or 25 grand and, and they'll they'll let you trade on margin. Yeah, is it because of the the interest rate that they charge? It's just such a, uh, you know, uh, they make so much yeah, money on it. They enormous. just got to make it super easy. Is that the deal? Yeah, I mean, think about think about a company and we're not picking on Charles Schwab. I mean, first, let me be very clear. Charles Schwab and these discount brokers have done an enormous benefits for us as investors over the last several decades. But how do they make money? Well, I mean, think about what's going on right now. They're not charging commissions for trading anymore. That's done. So they're really where they're making most of the money is on services like margin lending. They charge, you know, seven and a half, ten percent. And it is an incredibly lucrative business for them. So look, they're just offering a service. You're right, Remy. The minimums are low for a reason. They they make a killing off of stuff like this. It almost seems like they should have to post a warning that you're going to have to hit a certain hurdle rate to even break even. They probably do, but who reads that? Well, that's right. Yeah, who reads the terms and conditions? But you know, that's it's interesting, Mike, you mentioned hurdle rate because that's really what it is. If you're taking a loan out for, let's just mathematical purposes, 8%, you got to earn more than 8% to, 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 to just to break even. That's that's what the hurdle rate is. So not only do you want to be right about the market or whatever investment you're choosing, you got to be really right to make any kind of positive return. It just doesn't sound like, you know, margin investing makes a lot of sense for almost anyone. Some of the other ones on our list we'll talk about, I could see a use for in certain instances. This is one with no matter whether you're a professional or sitting at home retail investor, I can't think of a single reason why you want to invest on margin. Not one. So let's talk about number two on the list, going short. Yeah, so this is one where I could see some use towards, but I'll just skip to the conclusion first. Save this for the professionals. Going short is basically shorting a stock. You know, when you go long, that means you're investing in a stock thinking that it's going to go up. And the really cool thing about investing or going long is that there's what we call asymmetric payoff, right? If you put $5,000 into a stock and it goes to zero, the most you're going to lose is $5,000. But you have unlimited upside, theoretically, that stock could go to the moon. Well, you got to flip that around when you short a stock, okay? When you're betting that it's going to go down, you have limited upside, okay? You could only earn $5,000 if the stock goes to zero. But again, if it goes the other way, you have unlimited downside. And that's the scary thing when you short stocks. You know, think about what happened earlier this year with GameStop and AMC, but mostly GameStop. I mean, you're talking about some very sophisticated hedge fund investors, and they almost went out of business because of a short squeeze. And that's when you see a stock that's heavily shorted, you get some positive news around that stock and it takes off. And when that happens, if you're short, you know you have unlimited downside. So what do you do? You try to cover your position, basically throwing gasoline on a flame. So shorting stocks is a legitimate strategy. I actually think that it's a very good thing for markets. Think about a market that you can't short. And I will tell you that is a market ripe for something bad to happen over time. Short sellers keep things in check, but they're professionals. And most of the people, frankly, listening to this podcast are probably not professionals. So I think it's really important that you avoid the desire to short stocks at all costs. The risk is too high. On to number three, stop loss orders. This one was yeah. surprising to me, Tino. It doesn't seem that risky, really. I thought the same thing when I read it, right? Because it's like, it's almost the opposite of what you just talked about. You're limiting your downside. This is a controversial one because I know we're going to get some pushback on this. The problem, the reason why I don't like stop loss orders is that it fundamentally goes against everything that I believe in, in terms of long-term investing and being patient. And also they don't work the way most people realize. Look, if I put on a stop loss order, what that basically means, if I got a stock that's trading at 50 bucks a share when I buy it, I don't want to lose more than, let's say, 10 bucks a share. So I put a stop loss at 40. So basically what, the, what, what my broker will do is 
if the stock ever falls below 40, it's going to execute a sell at that next price after $40 a share. There's a couple issues though. Like I said, first is that it's not going to trade at $40 a share. What happens is it actually enters the, the, the sell as a market order below 40. So let's say the market's in free fall. Let's say, for example, that I'm invested in a stock and they have bad earnings report or something happens after hours and the next day the market opens and it's down 20% well below my $40 threshold, it's going to enter a market order into the panic, which who knows where that's going to get executed. So that's one problem. Another problem I have with stop loss orders is that when you buy a stock, what you, in my opinion, should be doing is buying it for the long run. Now, we don't know what happens on a day-to-day basis. Fundamentals don't drive stock prices on a day-to-day basis. Emotions do. Fear, panic, greed, euphoria, stupidity, things like that move stock prices. So to sit there and say, I've got a thesis on a stock and to just say, okay, if it goes below a certain threshold, get me out. I'm locking in, potentially locking in a loss for something that has nothing to do with the fundamental thesis. And and I'm sure people would want to debate me on that, but that's just the way I view it. And the third, there are actually predatory traders out there because the professionals know that stop loss orders are a bit of a gimmick. They look for stocks that potentially have a lot of stop loss orders assigned to them and take a guess what they do. They short the stock big time to get the stock to start falling, triggering the stop loss orders. It's called, uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, Stop hunting. That's what it is. It triggers a bunch of stop loss orders, which is again, throwing fuel to the fire and take a guess what they do once they see the stop losses get triggered. They cover their shorts and they go long. So you got to deal with stuff like this out there. There are people out there waiting for retail investors to use stop loss orders against them. And that's why I don't like them. I guess when I think about stop loss orders, I think that in the market that we're in right now, which has been, at least it seems to me to be more volatile than usual, right? There's, there's so much information on social media. There's so many things that drive the stock prices up and down dramatically within a short period of time, sometimes hours, that you really are guaranteeing to lock in your loss. And that's, that's yeah. to me, you know, I think to the average person, that's really the, the danger, correct? Yeah, you, you lock in a loss for something that might not even make sense. I mean, let's go back to, what was it, January, February this year when technology stocks began to sell off a little bit. Let's say you had a stop loss order on there. You had bad timing. You bought in February, it was bad timing in the short run. But in the long run, if your thesis is technology companies are going to innovate and continue to change the world, then you've locked in a loss. And then psychologically, what's it going to take for you to walk back into that trade or that investment rather? I think it's. I think it becomes a psychological problem. I agree with you, but actually, that was my what was going to be my argument against what you're saying, which is that I would think that the average investor, if you're not using a stop loss order, and let's say the market tanks, you know, some some bad news comes out in the morning, whatever it is that you're invested in tanks for that day, emotionally, is that person going to rush to their trading account? and unload whatever holdings they have at that time, which is probably even lower than whatever their stop loss would be at that point. That, that would be my guess. In which case, are you sort of saving yourself from your own lack of emotional discipline? Potentially. And, and again, look, I, I think that there are people going to listen to this and say, I'm still going to use stop loss orders. They're relatively benign. And there, there's, there is an argument to be, be made there. I guess my issue is that most people don't realize how these things actually work. If you put a stop loss at 40, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to trade out at 40. And like you said, Remy, if let's say this thing tanks super fast or, or it opens 10, 20% below where it was the day before, below your stop loss order, it's going to execute at the open. Not at 40, but let's say it's trading at 32. You're going to get locked in at 32. I sort of think this, this plays into the, you know, do you use an advisor? Do you not use an advisor thing too, right? Because 
you were just saying, Tino, you know, when technology sort of took a hit a couple of weeks ago, we took a lot of calls, people calling and saying, sell, sell, sell. And we talked a lot of people out of selling, right? If they're self-managing, you know, are they selling or are they using stop losses? Either way, they're going to sell and lock in a loss. I, as we talked about before, nine, 99 out of 100 investment mistakes are because of what goes on in your head versus what stock you pick. So you're right. I mean, how you react in times of extreme stress, if you don't have the stomach for doing this on your own, call your financial advisor. I mean, that's what we're, we're here for that reason. I, I'd say that a good financial advisor, the majority of their job is being a good psychiatrist than anything else. And you're right. We think, think about the tax implications, or for that matter, just simple math. You know, let's say the market's down 10%. It takes a little bit more than 10% to get back to even, right? So these types of scenarios are exactly why advisors exist, is to, to kind of keep people's heads in the right spot. That really is the majority of the calls we take when the market is volatile, right? Is, is telling people not to panic, not to sell, because that is human nature. As soon as they see it going down, get me out. I hear it all yeah. the time. Yeah, that's the um, the catch-22 of, of investing in stocks, is that the best thing about stocks is that you can get out at any time, and the worst thing about stocks is you can get out at any time. Yeah, it's the liquidity component of the, of the of the stock market. And the overwhelming majority of the time, the answer is to not panic. That's why from an asset management point of view, you know, I myself, I spend more than half my time on communication and doing these podcasts, doing all the writing that we do, because I find that to be more valuable oftentimes than you know, spending a lot of time just poking into Excel spreadsheets and trying to figure out earnings reports and all that other fun stuff. It's important. Don't get me wrong, but it's not all that we do here. So let's go on to number four. And and this one sort of relates to the first one that we talked about. And I've got to think this one's ripe for disaster, which is levered ETFs. I utterly despise everything about levered ETFs. Everything. There's two problems with them. One is that a lot of, well, one, they're levered. We already talked about that. The other problem is that most people, when they use these, have no idea how they actually work. The leverage resets daily. What that means is that a levered ETF, let's say you're trying to get two or three times the exposure of the S&P 500. Let's say a 3x levered ETF works and it tracks very well over one day, one trading day. If you hold it longer than that, because of the way the math works, these things decouple very quickly from the underlying index unless the unless this market goes up every single day. That's the only way these things track well. So what you can end up doing is getting in a situation where you're down so far from where you started that it's almost impossible to recover. So I hate levered ETFs. Uh, the SEC doesn't like levered ETFs, and they've issued a number of warnings on these products, but there are the gamblers out there that love to trade these things. And in doing so, uh, they become very popular with certain types of investors, but we don't touch them. They're just too dangerous. And number five, the final one on your list, Currency trading or Forex trading as it's commonly known? Yeah, this is uh, what I call the wild west of, of investing or trading rather. Due to the advent of technology, currency trading has opened up to pretty much anybody. And, and the dangers of currency trading are, are as follows. One, the, the big players in currency trading are corporations, governments, very, very large institutions with incredibly deep pockets and very, very experienced traders. Currency traders know what they're doing. And what I call it the Wild West is because they're literally allowed to do whatever they, 
they want. Uh, there's almost no regulation at all. And if you're going into this market, remember you're going up against Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, those types of people that do this stuff for a living. And the currency market is actually open 24 hours. I think it's like five days a week. So you got to be glued to this market almost at all times. I, you know, the, the, the best currency traders, they'll tell you they've got, they've got TVs in their bathrooms or screens rather. They can't get away from the market. Otherwise they could risk a market turning on them because of the leverage. And we keep talking about leverage today. In the U.S., you're allowed to lever up 50 to one trading currency. So if you put a thousand bucks into an account, you're able to trade $50,000 worth of currency because the moves are tend to be very small. So you can get wiped out pretty quickly. And another problem with these markets is you go to some of these large Forex trading uh, firms online, these brokers are allowed to take the other side of the trade against you. So meaning that if I go to sell, let's, I'm going to make this up. Let's say I sell US dollars for euros and I enter the order into one of the online currency tools. That company can then take the other side of the trade. If they are looking at their flows from other trades that are going on at the same time and say, hey, I can earn money by making a market in this. So they can literally take the other side of the trade and charge you a commission. What other market is that even legal in? You can't do that in stocks. I mean, you'll go to jail. I mean, maybe to a degree in bond trading, you get away with it, but it almost feels like it's automated built-in insider trading, no? It's total front running in, in many ways but they're allowed to do it. So I can't think of a single situation where an individual investor would need to trade currencies, but because of the leverage, if you're right, you can make a killing. And, and everybody talks about George Soros and when he almost took down the Bank of England, it's this big story that happened and everybody wants to be him again and, and take on these crazy risks. But uh, you need to be really careful when it comes to currency trading. It's not just the leverage, it's the structure of the market that could go against you. So I think the theme of this entire article and of all five items on your list is that most people, the average person, is not educated enough, experienced enough, or have the mental fortitude to utilize any of these tools, right? They're very high risk tools. While they may serve a purpose, the average person probably shouldn't be using these. Yeah. I, look, I, I've always had a belief that investing, you don't need to be an expert at. It's the only industry I could think of where you don't need to be an expert in, and you can still do well over the long run. Trading is not investing. Trading is a skill. It requires an incredibly disciplined approach. And you're right. The professionals out there that do this stuff for a living, they are really, really good at what they do. And they are waiting for people that don't know what they're doing to enter into their markets. And they sit there and they take advantage of them. When it comes to any type of trading strategy, keep that in mind. And how you delineate between trading versus investing a lot of times has to do with how fast you want to get to whatever goals you're trying to achieve. I don't like things that try to speed up the process of investing. Investing is slow, it's incredibly boring, and it's not stuff you're really going to brag to your friends about on the golf course. Podcast is created and presented by Darwin Asset Management LLC and Darwin Advisors LLC, collectively referred to as Darwin. Darwin does not make any representation or warranties and therefore takes no responsibility as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information contained in this podcast. Any tax or legal information contained in this podcast is general in nature. Always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation. The information presented does not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and there can be no assurance that any investment or strategy will be suitable or profitable for a client's portfolio. All investment strategies have the potential for profit and loss. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Information presented is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities mentioned herein.